If you've been with us these last weeks, you know that our theme verse for this series of you and me when we disagree is Psalm 133 verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Rick and Lucy were visiting and caring for Lucy's mom this last week, so that so uh, in order to allow them to focus there, I got to be uh, in the pulpit this week, and I wanted to stay in the theme, but not steal any of the thunder of the actual messages that Rick had for this series set up. So I decided instead of looking at you and me when we disagree, let's look at you and me when we agree this morning. Let's take the psalm that that theme verse is from and spend our morning there in a Psalm 133 together, looking at unity and the blessings that come from it. I think it's good to do that because no matter what arena of life you would consider, we probably aren't too familiar with what unity really looks like. What we're familiar with is division. Division is everywhere today. Unity is rare. I think part of the reason division is everywhere is because it's easy. And since it's easy, it becomes commonplace. It becomes even expected. It becomes the path of least resistance sometimes to figure out where I'm different from that person and then to put them over there and me over here and to try to make sure that the only people that are around me are people that agree with me. Too often that's the easy way to go and there's a certain appeal to it on the surface. But we also recognize, don't we, that though it might have an appeal on the surface, acting in that way, continual division is tiring. Trying to make sure that I'm with the people that think like me, act like me, talk like me. It gets tiring. It gets old. Because the divisions get smaller and smaller, don't they? Maybe you're familiar with the joke about the uh, town of 4,000 people that had 48 Presbyterian churches. Or the one about the uh, guy who called another guy a heretic because he was a part of the North Conservative Regular Baptist Eastern Region Council of 1912 instead of the right one, which is, of course, the North Conservative Regular Baptist Eastern Region Council of 1879. Or perhaps my favorite, the guy who was rescued off of a desert island, and when the rescuers got there, they saw he had built three huts. They said, well, what are these? He said, well, this is my house, and that's my church. What's the third one? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. We can divide and divide and divide, trying to fit in just right with those who are around us, and it can be exhausting. But unity, unity brings life. It might be hard, but it's good. We know that experientially, and we see it in God's Word. So let's go ahead and look there now. Let's turn to Psalm 133. 
If you're newer to God's Word, I hope you have a copy of it with you, or you can uh, pull it up on your phone. But if you drop, open up right to the middle of your Bible, you will probably land in the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of poems, prayers, songs that are called oftentimes the hymn book of the nation of Israel. And Psalm 133, like so many of the Psalms, has what's called a superscription on it. So you see in your Bible where it says Psalm 133, and then it says a song of a sense of David. And this Psalm reads, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Joe's prayed for our time in the Word already, so let's go ahead and dive right in and see what God would have for us this morning from this psalm. First, we can see that uh, in that superscription, this is what's called a song of ascent. Now, most people believe that what that is referring to is that this would be a song sung by pilgrims as they were going up to Jerusalem. And from almost wherever you would be coming from in the country, to get to Jerusalem, you go up in elevation. So as the pilgrims were going to Jerusalem for one of the festivals during the year, they would be ascending and they would sing some of these songs, a song of ascent. If you think about it, that means that you would have had people from different cities, different backgrounds, all on a journey together, all with a shared destination and a common goal. What an appropriate time, right, to have a psalm about unity. They would have been working together, traveling together. They would have been with people different from themselves going toward a common goal. That sets up for us a helpful definition of unity as we talk about it today. Unity that I would like to put forth for us is that, uh, a definition I would like to put forth for us is that unity is mutual participation in a common cause without discord. Mutual participation in a common cause without discord. Whether it's making the trek from Galilee to Jerusalem, working working together to build a habitat house with people from other churches and no church, whatever the cause might be, when people mutually participate in a common cause without discord, without strife, They are operating in unity. As we look at the psalm itself, we can start to see some of the things that it teaches us about unity. First, right away, how good. How good it is when God's people dwell in unity. Unity is good. At a real simple, at a real basic level, it has advantages. It brings benefits. It's helpful. One commentator, Tremper Longman, says this in commenting on this. He says, even the absence of unity can teach the blessing of unity. Strife demands more energy, whereas peaceful unity 
means the corporate body can reach common goals with less stress. If individuals cooperate, then their efforts are multiplied. At a pragmatic level, less stress and multiplied efforts is a good thing. Unity is good. But David doesn't stop just with saying unity is good. He says how good and pleasant unity is. It's also pleasant. This word points toward not only advantage, but also beauty and harmony. Unity brings not only practical benefits for those who are engaged in it together, but also an intangible satisfaction. It's not only good to live in unity, it's also beautiful. It's attractive. (laughs) It's more fun. When it's experienced, unity is something that we rightly enjoy and long for. Lastly, we can see that David notes, I think it's interesting that he says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together. Or perhaps your translation says, dwell together in unity. The good, pleasant that, situation that we experience in unity doesn't come just as a result of achieving unity for a moment or acting in unity for a period of time, but of living in unity, persisting in it over not just months, but years and decades. It's this act of living in unity um, that would call to mind even a situation that was common in the world that David wrote into, where a family would share a plot of land And they would live on that plot of land for generations. So you would have literal brothers living in unity. You can imagine that living in unity wasn't always the case for these families sharing a plot of land and at times sharing a roof over their heads. But then you can imagine too how appropriate it would be for David to say how good And pleasant it is when these brothers, when God's people are living in unity. And then as so often is the case, I love in verse 2 that David doesn't just just give the benefits of living in unity, doesn't just give the truth about it, but he describes it. He begins to use his words to paint a picture. Hey, this is what's true about unity, but this is what it's like. And the first picture that he uses of what it's like is this picture of precious oil, of anointing oil, being used to anoint Aaron as a priest. If you're looking for where this happens in Scripture, you can read Exodus 29 or Exodus 30 for a description of the oil, for a description of the anointing. You can read Leviticus chapter 8 for the event itself. What's being recalled, this event that David is pointing to, is this instance when Aaron was installed as a priest on the completion of the tabernacle before Yahweh was fully worshipped in that structure, before that, uh, the rituals of Yahweh worship were initiated. 
And as a part of that ceremony, Aaron and the other priests were anointed with a special oil that was produced especially for that purpose. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't encounter Old Testament biblical anointing oil on a week-by-week basis, right? So how can we think about this? How can we imagine what it was like? Essential oils. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've got your little suitcases, cute little dividers, little bottles, right? All the labels on them and everything else. Ready to go around like an apothecary saying, okay, here you got some neck pain. We'll mix up some thyme. We'll mix up some oregano oil and something else. It works for soup too. And we'll put that on and then you'll feel great. Other of you are saying, what is he talking about with essential oil? Don't worry about it. You're not missing much. Just ask one of the people who's like, you can't use thyme and oregano for neck pain. It doesn't work. Peppermint. Peppermint and lavender. Fix him up in no time. Talk to one of those people. They'll set you straight. Um, how did we get there? Okay, right. So anointing oil. Uh, thinking about an oil that is special, that is extravagant. Take, uh, take what we would think about or know about these essential oils, these really special, expensive oils that are usually sold by the teaspoonful in cute little jars. Multiply the exclusivity factor by about 10. And instead of a little vial that has the special topper in it so a micro drop comes out at a time, make four or five gallons of it. That's the picture that we have, we should have, of this precious oil that David is talking about in Psalm 133, verse 2. This anointing oil was fragrant. It was luxurious. It was expensive. It was extravagant. It was highly regulated. It was used only for this specific purpose. And we can see... uh, When we look back at Leviticus 8, we can see here in Psalm 133 that they didn't use just a little bit of this anointing oil. They didn't just dip their finger in it and rub it on his forehead. They didn't just rub it on on Aaron's bald spot until he had a nice sheen on top or something like that. No, they poured it over his head. It ran down on his beard, down to the collar of his robe, so that his entire head is drenched. This is the picture that David is painting of the goodness, of the beauty that comes from unity. Close your eyes maybe and imagine that for a second. What did that look like? A man kneeling down. Uh, Hair and, and beard and somebody comes with a flask, a large jar, and they start pouring this oil out on his head. And you smell it. And you see the oil covering not only his hair, but his beard, his whole face, his neck, his his clothes are getting soiled with the oil. It's pouring down onto the ground, wetting the ground, and you look and you think, wow. That's extravagant. And this, the fragrance hits you and you think, wow, that's special. This doesn't happen every day. This doesn't happen all the time. You recognize that there's not a nook or a cranny 
not only of Aaron and his head and his body, but of the whole gathered assembly. They are all impacted together by what's happening. The impact of unity is pervasive. And not just pervasive, but it's also lasting. Yesterday I was doing something and I needed to use some bleach and I was really careful not to get it. Okay, those of you who are closing your eyes, you can open them back up now. I was really careful not to get it on my hands because I don't like the way bleach smells. If you get it on your hands, you're going to smell it the rest of the day, right? Think about that for Aaron as he had this fragrant oil poured all over his head and he couldn't just hop in the shower with a bottle of Dawn dish soap to get it out. How long was it before Aaron could go through a day without smelling that oil on himself? How long was it before he got it out of the creases in his neck or out of the hair in his beard? The impact of unity, like the impact of that anointing, would have been long-lasting. And the impact of that anointing oil was more than simply cosmetic. This oil, this process of his anointing was part of setting Aaron apart for a a specific work of service to God and service to God's people. Before a priest could engage in ministry, he had to be anointed with this precious oil. It's not difficult to start to draw some lessons from this as we think about unity. In mutual participation in a common cause without discord, in unity, nothing is left out. Everything is covered. Everything is impacted. And that impact isn't brief, but it's long-lasting. And this unity is a necessary part of being set apart for service to God and service to others. How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. There's a second image that David evokes here to help us understand the deep impact of unity. He says, like dew falling, uh, it is, he says, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Quick geography lesson here. Mount Hermon is a mountain about 120 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. So it's north of the Sea of Galilee in the very north of the region of Israel. Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet tall, a little bit over that. So it's one of the only mountains in this region that is continually snow-covered. Because of its location and because of its elevation, it receives abundant amounts of moisture, of snow, of rain, of dew. And you can well imagine that places that get abundant moisture are green, are fruitful, are full of life. One of the amazing things about Mount Hermon is that the the snow and the rain and the dew that falls on the slopes of Mount Hermon don't just water that immediate area, but the, the water comes down from Mount Hermon and it feeds the Sea of Galilee. It feeds the Jordan River. It provides water and life for an entire region. Mount Zion, on the other hand, doesn't necessarily refer to a specific mountain, but rather to the city of Jerusalem itself. 
And Jerusalem and the hills that make up the city of Jerusalem are relatively low and they're dry. They don't get a lot of dew there. David is painting this picture for us of unity as if the abundant dew and the life that it brings falls someplace you wouldn't expect it to. And just as the precious oil that comes down on Aaron's head signifies God's blessing and brings fruitfulness, so also the dew that comes down from heaven throughout the Old Testament is a sign of blessing and brings God's literal fruitfulness to the land. In this way, dew isn't just a symbol of blessing. Dew is seen in the Old Testament as the blessing of God himself. Go ahead, look it up sometime this week. Type into uh, Bible Gateway or on your version app or whatever you use, just the word do, and see how do occurs in the Old Testament, what it's used to communicate. And you'll see that it's almost synonymous in many instances with the blessing of God. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We know this. I don't think anybody in here would want to argue with this. Not just because it's God's word, but also because we, we know it's true. If we know that unity brings blessings, why don't we more often mutually participate in a common cause? without discord, without strife. I want to take the rest of our time this morning and look at three things that I believe are common barriers to unity. And then we'll take some time and talk about a path ahead. Because this question of why don't we act in unity is critical, I believe, for us to understand if we want to act in unity. So let's think about these barriers. What would make us look at someone else and say, you know what, I can't, I, I won't work with you on that. Maybe you're trying to do basically the same thing I'm doing. I know you're going this direction and I'm going that direction too, but you think X. You believe Y. And because of that, I'm going to get there on my own instead of together with you. The three barriers that we're going to look at, I think, build on each other. And they result in that situation. They result in us passing judgment on others and then dividing from them, even if essentially we're going the same direction. First barrier is this. We undervalue the blessings of unity. We undervalue the blessings of unity. We are at times simply dismissive of it. Yeah, unity's nice, but it's nice as an add-on. We don't really need it, do we? And I think that this is even a unique danger for us in the church because we care 
deeply about holiness, about righteousness. We care deeply and rightly so about truth. The problem is that it's possible that there are times when in our zeal for truth, we undervalue unity and the blessings that it brings. This isn't a problem unique to our age. Charles Spurgeon, that 19th century prince of preachers, put it this way. It may be with us that the very watchfulness of truth, which is so valuable, may make us suspect where there is no need for suspicion. We must watch lest we fight the Lord's battles with Satan's weapons. And so even from love to God and his truth, violate the spirit of unity. Do we at times undervalue the blessings that unity brings? And if we undervalue unity, we may then tend to overestimate the importance of non-essential issues. Have you ever noticed how important everything is in the world today? Part of the reason why is this. There are a whole bunch of people out there that want your time, that want your energy, that want your support, that want your dollars, that want your likes and your retweets. And we don't give up things that are important to us for things of little importance, of little value. So if I want your support, it doesn't work very well to say, hey, why don't you support me in this? It's not that big a deal, but it'd be kind of nice. No. It's got to be a big deal. It's got to be the end of the world, right? So if you want somebody to buy your tires, they're not just a little bit better than the, than the competitors. The problem is if you buy the competitors' tires, if you buy those tires, you will probably get a flat and die along with your entire family. If you want somebody to buy the organic milk that you're selling, it's not just a little bit different than that other milk. No, if you drink that other milk, you will be filling your body and your children's bodies with all sorts of chemicals that are sure to kill them eventually, right? Everything has to be important. If somebody wants your support on an issue, there aren't minor differences. It's the end of the world if that issue prevails. Everything looks so important sometimes. How important do things look when we ask ourselves the question, will this matter in a hundred thousand years? Will this matter in that time frame? And, and I think when we ask that question, we'll find that the vast majority of these things that seem perhaps so important, simply aren't. Wouldn't we say 
that precious few things, if anything, outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Gospel will still matter 100,000 years from now. You think of all the things that won't even exist, that won't even be a memory in 100,000 years. Companies. iPhone or Android? 100,000 years from now? What? Who cares? (laughs) Institutions. Denominations. Political parties. Causes. Countries. None of this will matter in 100,000 years. When we recognize that, we recognize too that the things that tend to divide us simply aren't that important. But we think they're important, don't we? We could make a list this morning of the things that we could divide over. Not only things that the world would divide over, that list would be almost infinite, uh, but things that the church can divide over. I've been to congregational meetings that got so bitter over the question of dancing. I've had intense conversations about the color of paint on a church wall or the time of a service. How many churches have split over the question of hymns or not? How many churches have split over which translation of Scripture to use, over whether or not they should keep the word Baptist or Lutheran or whatever it is in their name or on their sign. And those are some of the silly things that we know at the end of the day don't matter, but even those things that aren't silly, even the things that do matter, how discipleship is done in small groups or in community groups, whatever roles are or are not reserved for women, for men on a Sunday morning. Who our pastor is, who our pastor isn't. The ways that our faith intersects with and drives our politics. How many of these things will really matter in eternity? Are they really that important? We overemphasize non-essentials to our own pain. The third barrier to unity that's all too common in our lives is that we assume that my opinion is correct. I mean, of course it is, right? It's my opinion. And I'm not wrong. I mean, maybe that one time I was, but that was, that was a while ago, and I barely remember it anyway. So, the, of course I'm right about this. People that don't think this way, they don't, they don't get it. I'm right, right? In all seriousness, how easy is it for us to assume that our opinion is correct? How easily do we s- dismiss the contrary views of others? When we do that, 
And when that comes after we have already undervalued the blessings of unity and after we have overestimated the importance of some non-essential issue, and then when I assume that my opinion is correct about that non-essential issue, there's nothing to stop me from parting ways, from dividing, and forsaking unity. Church, let it be different amongst us. Now hear me, I'm not saying, I am not saying that we should ever forsake the truth of Scripture for the sake of some whitewashed pseudo-unity. There are times when it is right, when it is necessary, when it is good to say, if that's the direction you're going, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm out. Scripture won't let me go there. But God's word pleads with us before we break fellowship with someone else who loves Jesus to stop, to take a breath, to ask, is this really worth dividing If this doesn't go my way, will it matter in a hundred thousand years? And to ask, what if what if I'm wrong? And they actually understand it better than I do. And after we've asked those questions, to remember how good and pleasant it is for God's children to dwell together in unity. Remembering that. Unity brings forth God's blessing. It brings forth even life forevermore. I think it's no accident that David uses as a description of the blessings of unity language that we would connect with salvation. This language of life forevermore. There is a connection between unity and the gospel itself. The gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died and rose again to take the punishment for my sin, for your sin, that he died and rose again to redeem for God a worshiping people and to restore all things. The gospel is a common cause that compels our mutual participation. The gospel and our response to it will indeed matter in a hundred thousand years. The gospel is something that transcends all of the dividing lines, all of the walls that we would want to put up between us and somebody else. The gospel applies to rich and to poor. The gospel unites Democrats, independents, the Green Party, Republicans, The gospel brings together citizens and immigrants. It brings together Americans, French, Chinese, Iranians, North Koreans. The gospel invites all of humanity to join God's people through Christ. And the gospel invites all of those people into being a united family with Jesus Christ as the head. Can you imagine this morning a group of people comprised of individuals who are totally different from one another in many respects? 
A group of people who on the surface has nothing holding them together, but over the years mutually participates in a common cause without discord. That group of people would be wildly effective in whatever they were committed to. And that group of people would be wildly attractive to a divided world. Friends, we can be a group like that. We can be a group of people like that. In Christ, we have everything we need to live together in unity. We have a common cause important enough and true enough to transcend differences. We have the call, the command of God to live in unity. And we have the power of God through His Spirit binding us together in unity. Lakewood, we can be such a group of people. Will you commit this morning to taking a step, whatever it might be, big, small, to taking a step toward unity? Will you commit to taking a step toward working together toward a common cause without discord for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Oh God, we need this. And we need you to make this reality in us. Division comes so naturally for us, but it's not what you would have. Division seems so attractive, but it's in unity that is blessing and life. So God, would you help us to rightly recognize and to firmly hold to those things that will still matter in 100,000 years? God, would you help us to see second-level things, third-level things, tenth-level things for what they are? Forgive us, God, for when we have not. God, would you give us your Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to bind us together in the unity that we have in Christ? Thank you, God, that at the end of the day, this is not our war to win, but that you have already won the victory for us in Christ. God, would you let us walk in that and celebrate that well together today. Amen. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, you know, Brent, man, that sounds great. I want to move toward unity. I don't know how. Some stuff seems really big. I care a lot about it. Politics, I know, is one of those things for so many of us. Came across a, a booklet. Uh, it's called, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? I commend it to you not only uh, for its direct topic matter, but also because it provides a framework that I believe is very helpful for us to move toward unity 
on any number of divisive issues. There were a couple of, of them left after first service uh, back on the info desk. There's also a, a QR code that you can hit with your phone and get a free version of the audiobook. If you're interested, the audiobook's like an hour, doesn't take long. Listen to it while you're driving around. It can be a good thing. So I commend that to you and offer it to you if it might be helpful for something. By way of benediction taken from 1 Peter 3.8. Now may God bless us all with unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. As you go, go in Christ.